You guys ready? All right, we're going to take an on-ramp this morning to Romans 8 through John chapter 10. So bear with me for just a few minutes while we take this on-ramp and catch up to where we've been. I just want to read John 10.10. Many of you guys are familiar with this verse where Jesus says, The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come to give you life, and life abundantly. Jesus came so that you guys could have abundant life. Life to the fullest. Life beyond what we think we need. Extravagant life. Superfluous life. Think about those words. That's what Jesus meant when he said abundant life. Excess. But he wasn't talking about extravagant possessions or abundant wealth or abundant comfort. He was talking about life itself. More specifically, there's a verse up on the screen. Look at John chapter 16, 24. He came to give you a life that is abundantly full of joy. He says in John chapter 16, until now you've asked nothing in my name, but ask and you will receive so that what? What does it say? So that what? Your joy may be full. Look at John 17, 13. He says, I'm coming to you, praying to his Father. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy, what? Fulfilled in themselves. The full joy of Christ in you. How many of you want that joy? I want that joy. How many of you need that joy? We need it. But it's not just joy. Jesus also came to give you life that shares in his glory with him. That's John 17. He came to abide in you. That's John 15. He came to share fellowship and friendship with you. That's John 15. He came to share the everlasting love of the triune God with you now. That's John 17. That's Jesus' idea of abundant life. His glory, his fellowship, his love, his joy. And he came to give that to you. Certainly this abundant life includes our eternal life that he's promised us. But there's more to it than that. Because when you read these teachings that Jesus said to his disciples in John chapters 14 through 17, he's talking about now. He's praying to the Father that he would have His joy fulfilled in them, in this world, right now. Abundant life that Jesus came to give you is multifaceted. It goes much deeper and wider than you could ever even experience now in this life, yet he still wants to give it to you. This is the way it works, because God is infinite and everlasting, right? The deeper you go in knowledge of him... The deeper you go in joy in the Lord, the more you realize how much more there is. The more you love him, the more you want to grow in loving him. This is the abundant life that Jesus came to give. Now let me make the connection to where we've been. The last two weeks, Dan's been talking about the oak tree of your potential in Christ. And that's the potential that grows out of the acorn of your position in Christ. But there's something I want to add to that imagery, and it's a P word. It's a P word. We're joking about that. It's another P word. As we consider 
our potential in Christ. I hope, I hope you guys have thought about this since the last two weeks. Like, what is my potential in Christ? What did he make me to do for him? As you're considering that potential, the oak tree of that potential that comes from the acorn of position in Christ, we can't ignore the fact that it's rooted in the purposes of God. Your position in Christ can't be separated from God's will, from God's purposes, right? The acorn of being in Christ is the will of God, right? You can't separate your potential from that. The potential fruit that you bear in your life with Christ cannot be separated from those purposes of God. And so in these chapters in John, chapters 14 through 17, Jesus talks about fruit bearing, he talks about fellowship, and he ties it all together with this underlying theme, which is doing the will of the Father, right? The one who bears much fruit is the one who abides in Christ. The one who abides in Christ is the one who does the Father's will. And there's a word that sums this all up. The word is righteousness. To be one who is doing the Lord's will, who is in line with what God is doing, is to be righteous, Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Righteousness. Those are the ones who are going to be filled, who are satisfied. Those are the ones who have abundant life, the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew 6, 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. And all these things are going to be added to you. The righteousness of God, being in line with what God's will and purposes are, is the soil that the acorn is planted in from which the fruit grows. And so if we want to be people who are living abundant life, we've got to be grounded in that will. We've got to be grounded in what God is doing in the world. So how do we grow into that abundant life? How do we bear that abundance of fruit? That's the, the, the abundant life is a life that bears fruit. See that connection? It's a life that bears abundant fruit and harvest of righteousness. And so now we're merging onto the highway of Romans 8. The way that we bear much fruit in accordance with the will of the Father, well, Jesus said in John 16, in order to abide in me, I also have to do what? I have to abide in you. Yet I'm leaving and going back to my throne in heaven. But it's better for you that I leave because I'm sending you a helper. That's Romans 8. The helper. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We need you. We didn't even know how much we need him, but Jesus did, and he gave him to us. So all I'm getting at is that the abundant life Jesus promised to you right now is the Spirit-led life. The abundant life, the spirit-led life, pleases God by yielding an abundance of joy and the fruit of righteousness. And so there's just two points. I got two points today. That abundant life begins when the spirit dwells in you, and that abundant life increases when you submit to the Holy Spirit. So now we're on the highway of Romans 8. Look at verse 8. We're going to read it together. Romans 8, 8. You guys got the road map. We're on the highway. We're ready to roll. Everybody with me? Yeah. All right. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
But you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body's dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Lord, I just want to ask for your help right now. I want to ask for your anointing and your power and your authority to teach the word about how you help us bear fruit. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds. Lord, transform us, renew us, teach us through Romans 8 this morning, Lord, and through me. Lord, do your work in us. In Jesus' name. Abundant life begins when the Spirit of God dwells in you. And before I go any further... I just want to bring up the verse that Dan already said. He already preached the whole sermon for me. (laughs) You may ask the question, like, how do I know if the Holy Spirit dwells in me? And even as Dan and I were talking this week, he encouraged me, we don't want to to cause you to question if you have the Holy Spirit, if you really do. He said, we need to be pastored through this, right? My goal is not to just say to you guys, are you really sure you have the Holy Spirit? Are you really sure? Oh, you should second guess yourself. No, my goal is to assure you that if you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of God. Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you're in Christ by faith in what he's accomplished... He's abiding in you. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The foundation of our life in Christ, that acorn, right, of being in Christ that Dan's talked about for the last several weeks, the foundation of our entire Christian faith is the redemption that Jesus accomplished, then applied to us by his spirit as he's poured out on us. You guys catch that? Does that make sense? All right. The foundation of our faith is that when we believe in faith in what Jesus has done, he comes to dwell in us by his spirit. That's the starting point for abundant life. It begins when he dwells in you. And if he doesn't dwell in you, you don't belong to him, so abundant life will not take place. So while I don't want true believers to doubt whether they have the Holy Spirit, I will say, if you're not in Christ, if you haven't believed in the accomplishment of Jesus in his death and resurrection, then you need the Holy Spirit. You need to repent and be baptized. This is the starting point of abundant life. It is the acorn of being in Christ that Dan's talked about. But there's three things, and I'm just going to blaze through them real quickly. There's three things that this text mentions about the Spirit dwelling in us. The first thing is that the Spirit dwells in you for God's pleasure. Think about that. Verse 8 says, when you're in the flesh, you cannot what? You can't please God if you're in the flesh. Abundant life is all about pleasing God. 
When you're without the Spirit existing according to the flesh, you could not please God. You could not submit to his law. You could not love him. But now, look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, which means you can do what? You can please God, right? The Spirit coming to dwell in us is ultimately all about his ministry of glorifying the Father and exalting the Son. That's what the Spirit does. And it's all about him coming to carry that ministry out in you and make it your ministry too. It's all about glorifying the Father and exalting the Son, pleasing our Heavenly Father. The Spirit comes in you for God's pleasure, for his delight. You guys know that God delights when his people love him? How many of you guys delight when your children love you? God is our perfect father who delights when we love him. He gives his spirit to us for his own glory and his own pleasure. But the second thing is that the spirit comes and dwells in you, not only for God's pleasure, but with Christ's righteousness. Look at verse 10. It says, if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life. And zoom in on this phrase. He's life because of righteousness. Just think about this for a minute. When you're in the flesh, you couldn't please God. You weren't righteous. You were dead. Sin, dead. So then what is life? If sin is death, life is righteousness. Life is being in tune with what God is doing and worshiping him and loving him and doing everything he commands. That's life. And so the spirit is life to you because you lacked that in the flesh and he now brings that righteousness to you. But it's not just random generic righteousness, right? It's the righteousness of who? Jesus. He brings you the righteousness of Jesus. Going back to verses three and four. For God's done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be what? Fulfilled in you. He brings that righteousness of Jesus to you. And while we're justified by believing in faith in the work that Christ has already accomplished, he declares that we're righteous in that moment of faith, right? Sanctification is the Holy Spirit bringing that righteousness into you and then going through the progression of making you righteous. You're not only declared righteous, he also makes you righteous. You're not just positionally righteous, he also is doing the work of making you functionally righteous. The third thing is that he comes with that righteousness of Christ with resurrection power, through resurrection power. Even though the Spirit comes with Jesus' righteousness, in and of ourselves, we're still dead, right? Like, we can't even come up with the right thing to do. We can't even figure it out on our own because we've been dead in our sins. We've been darkened. We don't know what to do. And so he comes with the righteousness of Christ in resurrection power so that he can actually animate us to do the righteousness. He actually breathes into us like those wavy inflatable guys. He animates us to do the righteousness of Christ. And it's resurrection power that does that. And those three things are just the beginning 
of abundant life. That is the acorn being planted in the soil. That's where we've been the last two weeks. But let's talk about how the abundant life increases. If, in fact, the Spirit dwells in you, just think about, think about what I just said, the Spirit dwelling in you for God's pleasure, with Jesus' righteousness, through resurrection power. That's in you. That's in you. The Spirit of God is in you, ready with the full power of resurrection and purity of righteousness. Remember what Dan said? Our potential requires purity and power, right? And the Spirit is there with the purity and the power, ready to lead you in a life that pleases God. But how do we increase and grow into that fruit? It's when we submit to him. He's there ready, but then we must submit to him, right? Last week, Dan taught about five categories that become obstacles to our potential in Christ. Does anyone remember what those five things were? Come on, guys. What were they? They were the religious Christian, the critical Christian, the calculated Christian, the compromised Christian, and was the offended Christian. We got one of them. Good job, Dan. Uh, to be fair, I didn't give you a chance to say all five. Those five categories that, that seek to prohibit us from our potential in Christ. Remember John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to what? To steal, to kill, to destroy. The enemy can't remove us from our position in Christ, but he can derail our potential in Christ. He's trying to steal that fruit. He's trying to stop you from bearing fruit. That's his goal. And so in line with the language of Romans 8, those five categories are things of the flesh. Those are the things of the flesh that when you're in the flesh, that's where you live. That's where your mind goes. But you, however, are not in the flesh if the Spirit dwells in you. Remember several weeks ago, I don't know how many of you guys were here, uh, I talked about the Spirit-led mind. And that part of the text shows us that if your mind is constantly caught up in the things of the flesh, if you're constantly there, you need to evaluate whether or not you actually are in the spirit. Worst case scenario, if you're constantly in the flesh, then you're not in the spirit. Best case scenario, if you're in the flesh constantly and you know you do have the spirit in you, then you're displeasing God. You're quenching the spirit's work. You're ignoring the spirit's work. And you're not growing in abundant life. That's the best case scenario if you're a Christian living in the flesh. But we want that abundant life that Jesus promised. You guys remember what Jesus said to the ineffective, lukewarm church in Revelation 3? This is a serious situation that needs to be addressed. I'm not singling anybody out. This is the broader church as well. This needs to be addressed. There's far too many Christians living in that dilemma. There's too much of the world in them for them to enjoy the Lord, and there's too much of the Lord in them for them to enjoy the world. You guys catch that? That's the lukewarm, ineffective Christian. Have the spirit who's ready to work through you, yet you're living in the flesh. 
There's too many Christians walking around with baby acorns inside them that have not yet sprouted because they're resisting the work of the Spirit. They've let the weeds sprout up around the acorn, and those weeds are stealing all of the nutrients from the soil. I've got to share this quote that Dan sent me last night. It's by Smith Wigglesworth. If you guys don't know him, he's a British theologian, pastor. He says, the reason the world is not seeing Jesus is that Christian people are not filled with Jesus. They're satisfied with attending meetings weekly, reading the Bible occasionally, and praying sometimes. It's an awful thing for me to see people who profess to be Christians, lifeless, powerless, and in a place where their lives are so parallel to the unbelievers' lives that it's difficult to tell which place they're in, whether in the flesh or in the spirit. We can't go on like this, guys. The picture that God gave me to illustrate this is wearing the wrong shoes for the job. How many of you ever showed up to something and you're wearing the wrong shoes? <laughs> the effective soldier in the kingdom of God is wearing the shoes of what? They're wearing the shoes of the readiness that comes from the gospel and peace. They're wearing the shoes that are ready to respond to the master at any moment. The readiness of the gospel. But too many people are showing up to the battlefield in slippers. They're showing up to the battlefield more concerned with comfort than with conquering. They're showing up to the battlefield more concerned with the status quo than with surrendering to the master. We can't keep wearing the wrong shoes. Church, let this not be true of us. This grieves the Holy Spirit of God. It grieves his heart. It dishonors his name. It prohibits the oak tree from growing in your life. And if that's you and you feel stuck there, it's time to deal with it. It's time. But here's the thing. You're not without help. We get stuck there, right? But we're not without help. I always Here's a little fun fact about me, not to detract from what I'm saying, but I always try to put a song lyric in every time I speak. And here's the song lyric. You're not stuck there because you have a helper, and we're standing on the chain-breaking, miracle-making, powerful name of Jesus. The body-raising, prodigal-saving, powerful name of Jesus. You're not stuck there because he's ready to help you. And so if you're in Christ, though the flesh may have overtaken you, look at verse 12. You're no longer debtors to the flesh to live according to it. You don't owe it anything. It's not your master. Jesus is the master. To grow into your potential in Christ. In other words, to grow into abundant life that's bearing fruits of righteousness Here's the point. You must submit to the Holy Spirit. The key is surrender. Abundant life increases as you submit to the Holy Spirit. And I want to clarify this so we're not getting lost with terminology. When I say submitting to the Holy Spirit, I'm also referring to what Dan said earlier, honoring God's presence. Because the Spirit's dwelling in us, right? To submit to him is to honor him. 
We're honoring God's presence when we submit to the Holy Spirit. I'm also talking about walking with the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. I'm talking about cultivating companionship with the Spirit, friendship with God, abiding in Christ, spiritual maturity. These are all the same thing. It's all surrendering to the Holy Spirit who's dwelling in you. That's all that it is. It's surrendering to God every moment of every day. So on a practical level, how do we go about doing it? How do we submit to the Spirit? How do we prove that we're disciples of Christ growing into abundant, fruit-bearing life? The first thing, submitting to the Holy Spirit means removing the things of the flesh. A lot of Christians say they want to be filled with the Spirit, but the fact is they're already filled with the things of the flesh, and they can't be filled by the Spirit because they're already filled. That's Ephesians 5.18. Removing the things of the flesh is the process of repentance. And it's the first step in growing into abundant life. Repentance is also a process that will need to be repeated throughout life. It's not a one-and-done thing. Every time a weed of the flesh creeps up, we deal with it. That's repentance. A good Christian should repent every moment of every day because we always are going to sin until we're glorified, right? Repentance is ongoing. It's to be repeated. As, er as areas of weakness and failure become apparent, you put it to death. You remove and this is great. Millie said the word radical earlier. I had radical in my notes. Putting to death the things of the flesh is a radical removal of anything false or anything unholy in you. A radical removal. Look at verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to what? You're going to die. Living according to the flesh is empty and vain, and there's no good thing in it. But if by the Spirit you do what? Put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Repentance is radical. Repentance looks and feels like putting to death a personal friend. Because here's what happens. The areas of the flesh that have developed into strongholds in our hearts, they become these evil little pets that we cherish and we adore them and we cling to them. They're our little false messiahs, our little idols in our hearts. And we become so attached to them that they feel like a part of ourself. But Jesus says, you've got to put them to death. It's going to hurt, but you've got to put them to death. It means you're going to have to radically rearrange your life to get away from it. There's going to be noticeable change if you're repenting. Remember what Jesus said to do if your eye causes you to sin. He said it's better to do what? It's better to take out your eye than to keep sinning. That's how serious it is. It's better to lose your eye. It's better to lose your whole body than to continue sinning when the Spirit of God wants to move through you. We've got to take radical steps to put to death any area of the flesh that is false or unholy within us, and it's going to hurt. The thing is, though, as bad as it hurts to put those things to death, it's always going to be worth it. Jesus is always going to fill what is lacking when you put to death the flesh. 
He's always going to satisfy the thing that you were looking for somewhere else. Repentance is the process of radically removing those unholy things. But here's the second thing. Another important part of this putting to death the flesh is confession. Repentance, confession. There is power in confession. Do you guys believe that? There's power in confession. 1 John 1.9, we all know it. It says if we confess God, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Confessing your sins to God is required in order to be set free. That means that we agree with God about our sin. Confessing is agreeing about something, right? And declaring it. When we confess our sin to God, we're saying to him, this is how horrible my sin is, and this is how it's offended and hurt you. I'm confessing how wrong I am, how wrong that thing is that I've done. Lord, I agree with you about how wrong it is. No longer pretending to walk in holiness, but you're confessing that you're a sinner. But there's another verse about confession that doesn't get quoted as much. And I think if you're familiar with the Catholic Church, then maybe we've lost this thing because we've criticized the Catholic Church so much to the point where we don't really practice confessing things to one another in our circles. But James 5.16 says, if you confess your sins, not only to God, but to one another and pray for one another, then you're healed. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There is power in confessing your sins to another person who cares about your holiness. One of the most powerful, radical ways to get rid of the deeds of the flesh is to expose yourself to another Christian. The moment that you expose the reality of your sin to another person, here's what happens. You put yourself in a place where you need God's grace. As you expose your depravity to another person, you feel the shame, you feel the guilt, and you need God's grace in that moment. If you never confess the sin to another person, you don't put yourself in that position where you need God's grace as much. That exposing of yourself before another person just propels you into his arms of grace. Lord, I need you to catch me. I need you to take away this shame and this guilt. I need your grace more than anything right now. That's the power of confessing your sins to another person, and that is the place of freedom. The, what, what is the thing that sets you free? The truth is what sets you free. And it's when you speak the truth and confess, not only to God, but to another person, and then open yourself up to the ministry of prayer, right? Right? It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. You're doing this in partnership with another person and with God as they minister to you for healing. That's the place of healing. Yet God resists the proud and he resists the double-minded person. Yet he gives grace to the humble. As you confess your sins to another, you are humbling yourself and opening up yourself to receive God's grace. To be honest with you guys, this is actually part of my testimony. This is a part of my life that I will never forget, that I'm always going to be thankful for. When I was 20 years old, I came to a moment of realizing that I was living a double life, and I told one person about it. 
and the pain and the offense that happened from telling that person who was the person I was offending in my duplicitous life, that expanded into me telling two other people. And what happened was there was a lot of consequences in my life. I lost a lot of things that were of the flesh that I cherished. But in that moment, the Lord met me in grace that he never would have if I hadn't said that one thing to that one person in confession. It all goes back to that. And ever since then, he's had me on a trajectory of growing and trusting him and appealing to him for grace in these moments. Guys, confession to one another is a powerful thing. Confession and repentance open up the door to greater obedience. Confession and repentance are even in and of themselves acts of obedience. And they're things that we can't even do by ourselves in our own strength. Look at verse, um, where is it? Thir- uh, verse 13. He says, if you put to death the deeds of the body, how? By the Spirit. Like, we can't even confess and repent without the help of the Spirit. Do you guys believe that? We need God's help every step of the way. Yet once we do that, once we submit to him in confession and repentance, it opens up the door to greater obedience. And as Dan talked about several weeks ago, it's, it's the Holy Spirit revealing the depths of your sin and revealing the glories of Christ. And that's where he meets us in grace. So abundant life begins to grow as you submit to the Spirit through repentance and confession. But from there, the potential fruit is basically limitless. The potential to obey the Lord and serve him in righteousness is endless until we get to his kingdom, right? We can always be serving the Lord and never reach full capacity. Look back at verse 12. He says, if you're in the Spirit... You actually are debtors, but not to the flesh. If we're free in the spirit, who are we debtors to? Again, Dan touched on this earlier. He already preached the whole sermon for me. Go back, go back to Romans chapter 6. Man, when you zoom in on one chapter of the Bible, you forget the rest of the book of Romans like, has so much stuff that sheds light on this. Go back to Romans chapter 6. If we're free in the spirit, we actually are debtors. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. He says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under the law, but under grace. Skip down to verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. We are debtors to the righteousness that the Spirit wants to work out in our lives. We owe it to Jesus as ones who have been brought from the dead back to life. We owe it to him to present ourselves as members and instruments of righteousness. Paul will go on to say in Romans 12 
that that's actually our reasonable service. Like, that's like the bare minimum. Like, that's, that's reasonable. That's acceptable worship for all that Christ has done for us. It's reasonable for us to give everything as a slave to righteousness, as a debtor to do what Jesus wants to do through us. We actually become and are appointed to be the human agents that God has appointed to carry out his work in the world. Remember that. Actually, I think I deleted this out of my notes and skipped over it. The will of the, the Father that he's seeking to accomplish in the world is the very thing we talked about in the call to worship. He's reconciling all things to himself. He's making right what was wrong. He's healing. He's setting free. He's restoring. He's fixing what was broken. He's binding up. He's releasing the oppressed. He's reconciling all things, and he's judging the wicked. And he's doing all of this by Christ, who made peace through the blood on the cross. And so he calls us into that purpose in the world as ambassadors of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5. He's appointed you to be the ambassador through which he makes his appeal to lost sinners. He sends you out into the world as his agent to do righteousness. And the righteousness that Jesus fulfilled in his ministry wasn't just the bare minimum. He didn't just skate through life not sinning. The righteousness that Jesus accomplished was undoing the works of the kingdom of the enemy, right? He was releasing and healing and setting free, all of that stuff. He went above and beyond what the law required in bringing heaven to earth. Above and beyond. And then he sends you out as his ambassador to make his appeal to the rest of the world. So we get to be the human agents empowered by his spirit that accomplish the Father's will in the world. We're the tools by which his work of reconciliation is carried out. We are his instruments of righteousness. That is so much more than just not sinning. That comes with the authority that Dan talked about. Being an instrument of righteousness comes with the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. The Lord gave me another picture to illustrate this point. How many of you know what a canal lock is? Before railroads were established across the country, water canals were a common way to transport freight. You put it in a boat, you tow it down the canal because it's easy to transport heavy, big things across water. But where the canal came to a point where the elevation was misaligned, they had to build a lock. And here's how the lock works. The water flows in, the boat flows in on the water, the gate is shut, and the water fills up the lock and raises the boat up, and then the gate is open and it's released to continue. Do you guys catch that? We are the lock. The canal is the Holy Spirit, the living waters seeking to flow through us. Where there are people who are misaligned with the will of God, they haven't yet received the freight of the gospel. The Father and the Son are sending it out upon the canal of the Holy Spirit. It gets to the lock, which is us, and he then fills up the lock by his Spirit, and he releases us to those who need to receive it. That is what it is to be a spirit-led Christian. Opening, filling, releasing. Opening, filling, releasing. 
That's John 7. It's the rivers of living water flowing through you. That's the mercy gate of the temple from which the river flows with life. That is what yielding to the presence of God looks like. But it begins with presenting yourself as an instrument of righteousness. Remember, the Holy Spirit doesn't force you to obey. He brings all the grace of righteousness and the power of resurrection and the grace of God into your life and says, submit to me, yield to me, present yourself to me. Imagine if a king walked into a fine restaurant. What is the wait staff? What are the servers doing when that person of authority comes and sits down at a table? Do they stand back and wait for him to say what he wants? No. They move to him. They honor his presence and authority. They seek to do whatever he desires. That's their job. That is their reasonable service, right? They move to him and honor his presence. That is the heart posture of a spirit-led Christian. The king is in the room. The king is dwelling in you in full glory. Are you honoring his presence? Moment by moment, day by day, yielding to the will of the Father as the Spirit reveals it to you. Constantly laying down any things of the flesh that get in the way. Constantly, again, presenting yourself to be used by God to accomplish His righteousness in the world. Lord, I present myself to you today. Use me. You leave your quiet time and you find yourself in a situation where you're confronted with hatred and anger and cursing and the person doesn't want to see you. Lord, I yield to your will. Lord, I want to do your righteousness in this moment. Fill me, flow through me. That's what it is to be a spirit-led Christian. It applies to every situation, every circumstance, no matter how painful, no matter how horrible the situation is, it's the same pattern every time. You yield to the Holy Spirit by honoring his presence and authority, and you obey him. It doesn't mean the people are going to treat you well. They didn't treat Jesus well. Yet he honored the Father's will, even unto death. There's one last part of submitting to the Spirit as an instrument of righteousness. It's that you honor him by presenting yourself to him for service through thanksgiving and testimony. You honor the presence of the king by honoring what he's doing. You know, I've been to many churches and I've heard many Christians pray for revival. I've heard many Christians say, spirit, break out. We want to see a move of God. We want to see a revival. And the spirit's just done a million miracles in your life that you've ignored. The Spirit is constantly working. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep, right? He's always doing something. And he's done so much that we owe him thanksgiving for. We owe honor to him for all that he's doing. We owe him the testimonies of what he's done in our lives. What's going to compel him to do something in your life if you're just an ungrateful person that ignores everything he's already done? Ephesians 5.20 says that a spirit-filled person gives thanks always for everything in the name of Jesus. A spirit-led Christian is a thankful Christian. And a thankful Christian is a spirit-filled Christian. God is honored 
when we recognize what he's doing and thank him for it, when we testify about it before the brethren. He is so good to us. And this is the path that Dan was talking about earlier that we are compelled to lead you down. The heartbeat of this church must be honoring the presence of our God and giving thanks to him for all that he's doing. The heartbeat of this church must be about yielding to his presence and obeying him. That is the spirit-led life, and that is the abundant life. It begins as the spirit dwells in you, and it grows and grows and grows as you submit to the spirit through radical repentance, confession, presenting yourselves to be filled by the spirit as an instrument of righteousness. In closing, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 just keeps coming to my mind. Of all of those thousands of people who had no food, there was one boy who had his food, right? John chapter 6, verse 9, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. If I was that little boy and I was the only one with food, I would have eaten that food. I would have eaten that food and said, I guess I was the only one that came ready. But that's not what he did. What did he do with those pieces of bread and those fish? What did he do with them? He presented them to Jesus to be used to accomplish the will of the Father. And what did Jesus do when he broke the bread and produced a miracle? He gave thanks to the Father. That must be the heartbeat of this church. The little boy who had a few fish, a few pieces of bread, and he presented them to God to be used. That's my prayer for each one of you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we move into a time of breaking the bread of your body and receiving the wine of your blood, Lord, I pray that you would move among us now, Lord, where there's things of the flesh that need to be killed, we need to do it, Lord. We need to deal with it. Lord, where there are areas that we've been holding back from you, we need to yield them to you. We need to submit to you, Lord. We want to be a church that is abundant in our fruit, proving to be your disciples, because that's what glorifies the Father. So, Lord, would you do that work within us now? Let's just stay in a posture before the Lord. Um, first, I just want to thank the Lord for... Um, I don't know if it's just me, um, but the Lord is the Lord is bound James and my heart together. I can sit there, and my spirit is shaking, trembling within me, just because it's this is right, this is right, this is right, this is right. This is the burden that God has placed upon our hearts together, and I feel like an older brother just. So encouraged, proud of a younger brother. 
I just, I just pray, Lord, this is that you take us further in this together, that you take the unity, the burden, and uh, as a church, we share it all together. That together our spirits tremble at these truths. God, we trust that, and we know from experience that these times are not, are not normal as they should be. Your work in our hearts, your work according to your word, what you're accomplishing in these moments, it's not normal as it should be. And so, Lord, we want to follow in what you are doing. And I believe the Lord, as James was speaking, we are not debtors to the flesh. However, sometimes we live lives that give a foothold to the enemy. And there is a spiritual bond in place. You owe something to the enemy and he holds that authority over you until you allow the authority of Jesus to break that bond you owe something to Satan you owe something to the enemy his authority will stand in your life and he will have even some ground to accuse you this person owes me, this person owes me, this person owes me. There's been oaths made to the enemy. And if you're, if you're sitting back and saying, well, Christians, they, they can't have that happen in their life when they have the spirit. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That is a faulty belief. How the enemy would like you to believe that as a Christian you no longer have any kind of hold that the enemy might have upon you. Why would again and again the New Testament writers warn us of the roaring lion? Satan himself, oh, he can get a hold of you. He can have a demand upon your life because you've given over to him. You've given over to him. You've given over to him. You've become a debtor to the flesh. But Paul has every right to say, you are no longer a debtor to the flesh. You owe everything now to Jesus. You owe it all to Jesus. That is not guilt-driven, by the way. Don't think, oh man, now I, gotta, now I gotta do all this religious. That's not the point at all. His grace comes freely. Grace comes free to you. He's paid the debt. He's paid it all. Now you just live in the good of all that he provides you. We owe it all to Jesus. We owe, we owe our lives to live out the grace that he supplies to us. We get the grace, he gets the glory. But should you hold on to these promises made, these oaths made in the spirit to the enemy, oh, you will struggle in your Christian walk. The enemy has a right to say, this one owes me something. You got to bring that junk into the light of the authority of Jesus, or he will continue to have a hold on your life. 
He'll have a right to be there. He'll have a right to say, this one owes me. So we step into this place, establishing the court of the kingdom here. Jesus, your authority stands here. I pray that you would attend this space with your angels, your heavenly bailiffs. You are the judge. You are the one who has authority in this place. The enemy does not have any authority. And so, Jesus, we pray even right now that your authority would be known through and through within our own hearts and lives. I pray even right now that you would give us the grace of confession, that our lips would be opened and uh, we would begin to reveal the darkness perhaps that we've been holding on to in different ways. Whether it's the simple stuff that we often think of just, well, I'm, I've given, I give way too much time to entertainment. I find myself picking up my phone again and again and again and again, having no bandwidth in my life then for Jesus, having no room to read his word and know the nourishment that it can be to my soul. I find myself going to entertainment again, 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 again. I find myself going to social media again and again, listening to the voice of the culture, never listening to my Jesus. Lord, even those things, we confess. We confess them to you and say, Jesus, bring your grace to bear in them. Would you uh, uproot those weeds that are getting in the way of the acorn actually sprouting into life? Lord, and, and we could only wonder in greater measure the things that our lives are given to. Lord, we don't assume that as a church we have it all together. That has not been true of the past. I doubt it's true of the present. Our hearts are given to things much more twisted. And so now in Jesus' name, we hand those things over. Lord, um, we hand it all over to you. Jesus, I pray that the light of your presence would dawn upon the darkness of our hearts to the point where we can't hold on to it. Trouble our souls. Trouble our souls until we bring it into the light. Satan must owe, be owed nothing for those who walk in you. So Jesus, have full sway upon our hearts. Have full sway. We're going to participate in the Lord's table uh, right now. There's two tables at the back. I'm going to ask you to just uh, go ahead and grab the elements. Um, as you do that, I want you to be thinking through the word that you just heard. Confessing to the Lord, perhaps repenting, <laughs> saying, Lord, hey, here's where my heart has been. I just want to acknowledge it before you. Oh, he is, he is a gentle giant. <laughs> His yoke is easy. Don't, don't allow it to be this, oh man, I got to hang my head and go through this world of self-pity in order to gain some forgiveness from Jesus. Jesus hung his head upon the cross so you could hang your, high, your head high, right? It is him who's gone before you and now there is great forgiveness. So let's go ahead and grab the elements. Take them to your seat.
he has sent us a helper. It's better that he would go so that we might have the helper. His body was broken, his blood was shed to ensure for us a helper, a helper who does not stand outside of us, but a helper who is within us, who's given us newness of life, who, who is the functional reality of our position in Christ. He applies all the benefits that Jesus has won us so that, yes, we know the position that we have in Jesus and we know what it is now to walk this life out in greater measure. It's the Spirit of God who is in, it's an important word, in us. Jesus said that we are to take these elements in remembrance of him, but he's designed it such that we would take it in, that we would ingest it. And the whole symbol, and I don't believe it's merely symbol, but the whole act is to represent the fact that now his power and presence, along with, oh, we got to get there, the purity his purity now is in us. It is in us. So I think our heart's posture before the Lord as we take these elements in is to just say, all right, Lord, fill me up. Nourish every part of my being with your presence. Nourish me. Nourish my mind. Nourish my imagination. Nourish my body. Nourish my spiritual well-being. Nourish it all. Bring all the light of your nourishment into all the cavities of my being, both physical and spiritual. So, Lord, we bless these elements. As we take them, O oh Lord, attend them with your presence. You are nourishment. You are life unto us. We do this in remembrance of you. Let's take the elements. Father, we bless you. Jesus, we are so grateful for you. Spirit of God, how wonderful it is to do life with you, to know your filling, to know the joy that you bring to bear upon our hearts, to know the peace that surpasses all understanding. This is not just words, black and white words in a Bible. It's what we know within we know this reality within, and we want to know even more of it. We want to know more of it. We want to know more of it, Lord. Don't, don't, uh, don't stop. In all our, uh, in all our weaknesses, and all, and all that we lack in wisdom, Lord, what you're doing here, don't stop. Don't stop, Lord. Don't stop. Lord, even perhaps at times, as you continue to move, where we would say, oh, Lord, stay your hand. Uh, would you please not? Would you please not? But grant the life and the life abundantly that you died to secure for your people. May we have it. May we know it in deeper and in deeper measure. And even now, I just pray, O oh Spirit of God, as you've attended the elements, Lord, fill us up. Fill us. We submit ourselves to you. 
If there's confession to happen, oh, let it be. If there's repentance to happen, let it be, Lord. Let it be. Let us get the darkness into the light so we might know in greater measure the life that you've granted us. But we, want to, we don't want to jack up just all that you intend to do. We want to bring all that darkness into the light, no matter what shame it might seem. Oh, enemy, you have nothing in your lives. You think you're going to shame us. You think you're just going to discourage us when things are brought into the light. No, 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 no. Life can only happen when the darkness is brought into the light. We can only know the lack of shame uh, when we bring it into the light and know the pleasure of our God and know all that Jesus died to secure for us. For he knew, he knew both the sins that we've committed, the sins that we now live, and even the sins that we will do. Jesus, you took care of all of it. What a righteousness we know now, and therefore there, there, is, there is no trying to hide things. No, we bring it to you and say, Lord, consume it in the light of your glory. Make us new in you. We pray in Jesus' name.
Um, I think the Lord would just want to put one check in place before we dismiss. Uh, someone just texted me, you know, what do, what do we do with confession? Um, let me just say this, and we need to establish this in our house. This has been something historically that we've learned here. Transparency is neither a virtue nor a vice. Catch it? Being transparent is not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It can be either, depending on what you do with it. Just to confess something without any desire to be filled with the Spirit after, to actually walk in the way of, of righteousness, oh, you are doing nothing but taking the work of the enemy and creating an atmosphere of darkness. If your aim is not to walk in the light, when you confess, you're not actually creating light, you're creating more darkness. Catch it? So we have to be careful. That's, that's one piece of the check. The second piece of the check is Galatians chapter 6. When you, um, when you receive the confession of another brother or sister, be careful that you aren't tempted likewise. When somebody says, this has been my struggle, oh, there is a world of warfare to be had when you're on the receiving end of confessions. You will experience, in part, the same warfare that they've experienced. You're now stepping in as a co-laborer to see light brought into the darkness, but you will feel the darkness when you share in someone's confession. That's why you better have Jesus at the center of that thing. Or you're both going down. <laughs> we don't stand in our flesh confessing sins to one. Nope, we're getting to the light. We're getting to the light as fast as we can. We're getting to Jesus. It's also why in confession, not all details need to be shared. The gist needs to be shared so that it can be brought into the light. Details create temptation for both parties, which becomes unhelpful. We need to get to Jesus, okay? Be careful that you're not tempted with the same stuff that that person confessing is being tempted with. Got to get to Jesus quickly. What do we do? You know, ultimately, when someone says, hey, here's where I've been at, I need help. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. It's the sim most simple thing. Our, once again, our aim is to get to Jesus, to bring darkness into the light. We grow degree of glory by degree of glory into Christ's likeness when we behold him, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So it's the, the work of together saying, all right, here, here, here's where sin has been operating. Let's get to Jesus. Let's be reassured of the forgiveness that's found in him. Let's be reassured of the grace that is found in him to make now this way of darkness a way of light, to see it redeemed. We're getting to Jesus. We're getting to Jesus. We're getting to Jesus. And it's going to help in those moments of confession to get to worship. You worship him. It's not about all, you know, all these detailed therapeutic counsel. Let's have a time of counseling. No, we got to get to worship. 
We got to get his presence to bear in all of us, our eyes upon him, okay? So there are some things to keep in mind, perhaps as we confess, as the men's group is starting up, uh, we'll be hitting things up in January, early January, looking at January 8th to have another meeting for the guys. And when we begin to get comfortable where we can begin sharing things, oh, don't leave it at just mere confession. That confession's got to go somewhere. We got to get to the feet of Jesus quickly to bring light upon that darkness, to assure our hearts of the forgiveness that's found in Jesus and the grace that is there to make something that was crooked straight again. Let it be. Just want to wait on the Lord for just a moment. All right, by way of benediction then, um, Romans chapter 11, uh, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has a gift uh, to give him that can be repaid? You can't repay him. We're a debtor to him, but you can't repay him. You can't repay him. It's, it's too big. The way we, we repay our debts to Jesus is to continue to fall in debt to him. Make sense? He's going to give grace today. He'll give grace tomorrow. And it's to put that grace to use again and again. Fall in greater debt to Jesus is the way in which we demonstrate, yep, we owe all to Jesus. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God bless. Grace and peace to you guys.